Coming up, we hear from longtime Madison area pastor Kirk Morlich about growing up in Madison, the life of a Navy chaplain, and his reflections on pastoring in Wanakee for the past 30 years. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host and one of the staff here at Upper House. Classes begin at UW-Madison in just a couple of days, and we're really excited about our own programming. We have an enlarged fellows program that has almost 30 students in it this year. We have events coming starting in mid-September and many other things happening in the space. Now, regular listeners will know that many of our conversations are based around new books or new artwork or other creations. And we really like to talk to the authors to get a sense of their background and how their lives have influenced what they write and what they create. We always try to bring to the fore more about the author or the artist or the filmmaker or whomever to complement the discussion of the content. But in a few cases, in a few episodes, the priorities flipped and we focus mostly on the biographies of the people, especially those in our community who shaped our shared local culture and life together. And in that vein, it's a pleasure to bring another episode shining light on a member of our community here in the Madison area. This time, Reverend Kirk Morlich, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Wanakee, which is a neighboring town to Madison. And Reverend Kirk's been the pastor at First Press for 30 years. And he's also a longtime Navy chaplain who served in that role for more than 25 years, including multiple tours abroad. And Reverend Kirk also grew up in Madison on the West Side and has many great reflections about what the West Side of Madison was like many decades ago. His conversation with John, the executive director here at Upper House, puts on full display his energy, dynamism, and heart for ministry. I want to get to the interview as quickly as possible, but first, just a reminder that, uh, as I just mentioned, our semester is ramping up, and we at Upper House are excited for the different things we have on offer. So head to upperhouse.org slash events to see all of those opportunities, and email us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org for any comments or questions you have. With that, here's an Upwards conversation with John Terrell and Reverend Kirk Mortledge. Kirk, it is a pleasure to have you here at Upper House today. Thanks, John. Really looking forward to this conversation. I've known you for a number of years, I think, um, since arriving back in Madison. You know, I've done two stints in Madison, but we became friends um, when I moved back to Madison from Seattle. And I've always just found your background and your in- background to be fascinating and your insights um, to be really helpful. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today, uh, learn more about your experiences. And I know you're also at a really interesting point in your own life because you're going through some transition. That's a good word. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's go back to the beginning. Uh, let's start. This is sounding biblical. 
It is. It is. We're going to go all the way back. I would love to hear um, a bit about where you grew up. What was life like in the Morledge home? Uh, what was your neighborhood like? Um, draw us into draw us into your neighborhood and your experience as a child growing up. Well, uh, I actually started out in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my dad was a med student at Case in Cleveland. That's where he met my mom. Saw her across the room in the cafeteria. She was a nursing student there. That's where they met. I was born there a while later. We lived there for a little while, then moved to Seattle, believe it or not. So I spent some time uh, where you were. Okay. Not too far from the university campus there. Uh, then we moved to Madison. Um, my parents saw a cover on Life magazine. Are you old enough to remember Life Oh, yeah, magazine? I remember Life magazine. You remember Life? Sure, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. You remember there was always an iconic photo on the cover of Very Life much magazine. so. Um, Norman Rockwell right, did right. a number Just, of those. Yeah, right. it sort of galvanized. Every, the whole country saw that photo on the cover of Life magazine when it came out every week. Well, do you know, one of the cover photos on Life magazine back in the middle 50s showed a picture of the Wisconsin State Capitol. Hmm. And the cover of Life magazine said, Madison, Wisconsin, the most livable community in America. <clears throat> my folks were in Seattle then. My dad was finishing his residency. My dad was from Oklahoma. Uh, so he was a, kind of a Southwesterner. My mom was from Ohio, sort of in the other direction. Uh, they were looking for someplace kind of in between, and uh, they saw this cover of life, and that's what brought them to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so I grew up here, on the, mostly on the west side of town. Uh, we lived on, I was actually in, I was in the first class in more schools than I can count. In other words, when I mean the first class, I mean the first year it opened. Madison was spreading west, and they were building new schools, opening new schools. I can't tell you how many times I was in the first year. We just opened the school. Welcome. Here we are. Including Memorial High School. Okay, I don't want to sound too ancient, but we actually lived out there when, you know Mineral Point Road? You ever drive out there? Every day. Okay, and you know where Memorial High School is? So did you know right where Memorial High School is and Mineral Point Road goes? Uh, there, was a, there was sort of a couple of stumps and a piece of wood across the road right there. And you didn't go any farther past Memorial High School. No West Town. Nobody had ever heard of a shopping mall. You're not old enough to remember that. No, I can't remember that. But nobody had ever heard of a shopping mall. That was not a thing. The word mall was not in the lexicon. There were all cornfields out there. West Town had not been built. There was a, there was a big uh, outdoor drive-in movie theater out there, an outdoor movie theater called The Big Sky. And I remember kids used to crawl through the corn out there to lie on their bellies and watch the flickering screen at night out there on the west side. And you know, that was back in the days when they were bringing, introducing something called X-rated movies. Nobody remembers there was a rating called X anymore, but... You could lie on your belly in the cornfield out there and pretty much watch whatever you want to see. So I grew up out there on the west side, and it was American suburbia. Yeah. Big TV shows in those days. Uh, probably none of your listeners will remember these. There was one called Leave it to Beaver. You ever seen that? I've seen it. You've seen it? I've seen it. You seen are it not that old. In reruns. Okay, only in reruns. Yeah. I was watching it, you know, when it was produced. Sure. Anyway, uh, it was the Leave it to Beaver era in America, uh, and it was all about, you know, the nuclear family. And I grew up in that world. Dads went to work. You could see all the cars pull out of the driveways in the morning. At the same time. At the same time. Yeah. 
Everybody wearing suits and ties. It was a different era. Well, what was it like? Uh, well, by the way, okay, yeah, well, go ahead. Yeah. Well, let me just finish that. Um, so where I was headed with that was, uh, <clears throat> you know, the mom stayed home. And nowadays, you hear an expression, and you'll often hear people say this, it became popular in a you know, in the political world, not too many years ago, it takes a village, it takes a village. You've heard that expression. It takes a village to raise a child. I'm not sure that's actually happening much in America today where villages are raising children because I think we're so atomized and so separated and so fragmented and so suspicious sometimes of our neighbors. I know people who've been living next to the same neighbors for years and years, and they don't even know each other. Yeah, They've never really talked, never really met. Oh, my goodness. It was not that at all in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Some mysterious way, everybody knew everybody. How did that ever happen? Everybody knew everybody on the street. You could go down the street and name the name of the family inside every house. I would defy most people today to walk up and down both sides of their streets and name the name of every family and their kids and tell me anything about them. I don't think America can do that today. We could do that then. And so it was a village raising children in the sense that every mom was your mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every mom was your mom. Every mom could tell you what to do. Every mom could tell you when to get home. Every dad could correct you if you stepped out of the line, if you said something you weren't supposed to say. It was very much that world. There was a village raising children then. But the other thing I remember that really stands out in my mind was children were really on their own in a way that I don't think people can imagine today. Uh, why weren't parents afraid back then to let us walk to school when we were five? I, I walked to kindergarten, and I went to a school called Orchard Ridge, which is still there today, and I walked, uh, it had to be maybe a third of a mile, and I walked by myself when I was five, and I had to cross a street called Whitney Way. How is it that I was allowed to do that? At five. And why didn't anything happen to me? You realize how vulnerable I was back then? But children are really left on their own. And I'm astonished when I look back how much freedom we had as kids and how often, particularly in the summertime, it was goodbye to mom and dad in the morning and we didn't see them till dinner time. Yeah, I remember I used to, my parents used to ring a bell. Yeah, we had a bell. We had a bell. John, you're dating yourself. Yeah, no, we had a, we had a bell as well. Well, let, let me um, so let me push that a little bit. I wasn't planning to go here, but you, you know, you're painting a picture of sort of an idyllic community. Well, not it, idyllic. There was an underside. Yeah, so that may, maybe there was an underside. Yeah, so speak to that because I, you know, the, the younger listeners here might imagining that it's you know two older guys just sort of. Yeah. Um, no, there was an underside. You know, imagining or dreaming back, reflecting back on the good old days, and that's not exactly, I think, where you're going. Um, well, no, there was an underside. Yeah, so what was the underside of, of your community growing up? A black person probably could not have moved into that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. would, no, would never have considered it. The ability of women to make choices was constricted in a way that hard for you and me to imagine. Uh, I had uh, two sisters, their occupational choices, well, certainly for my mom, she was a nurse. Her occupational choices in that day were pretty much limited to mom, secretary, or nurse. Those were the only choices you could make. A school teacher, maybe. Maybe a school teacher. Oh, of course. Yeah, I forgot about that. My mom has told me that when we were living in that neighborhood, uh, you know, she could not get a credit card in her own name. That would not have been permitted. The law did not allow that. She could not open a bank account without her husband's signature. 
there were some very, very tightly prescribed uh, sort of restrictions on who could do what and when. And people have way more choices and freedoms now. You know, there was an under, there was an underside. Yeah, yeah. One of the upper sides, and this is not just so much to say good old days, good old days, good old days, but I'm amazed at how much kids could do in those days. I'll never forget, and I have this in a scrapbook someplace, there was a picture on the front page of the Wisconsin State Journal, the local newspaper. We show the kids in our neighborhood uh, put on a circus. Put on a circus. It's just a picture of the kids putting on a circus. And I remember being part of that. But the astonishing thing is the kids in the neighborhood put on a circus and there were no adults involved. I actually think that world is completely gone. Yeah. But it wasn't a perfect world. If anybody says it was a perfect world, they're wrong. The show Father Knows Best. Think of the people who are watching that show and Father was physically abusive. Father was consumed by alcohol. Uh, father was having serial adulterous affairs, and so on and so on and so on. Where did those people go with those concerns? If the whole world was telling you father knows best and can't be touched, so there was an underside. Some things are much much better now. But you asked me where I came from, and that's where I that's came from. and that's really descriptive. And even in you know I'm not as old as you are, but I remember a lot of that. Some you do, that. yeah. I grew up before video games, and you know a lot of that creativity, probably that you're describing, that gets worked out in a circus, a community circus, or a neighborhood circus, maybe finds other expressions. You have pastored for almost four decades, three and a half decades. Well, four if you count four. Where it was before you came here, but uh, but a community-oriented church, and yeah. so I'd like to explore that because I know you have have tried to nurture some of those relationships right. and and sense of community. Let me let me uh, stay with your childhood for a while here, and I don't know actually when this happened, but I am curious to know, when you first began to identify as a Christ follower, what happened? What, what moved you from no faith to faith, if you had that kind of a... Identify transition? as a Christ follower, you know, Barna, George Barna, are you familiar with his work? You know, he says most people make a faith decision before they're 21 years old. Isn't that interesting? He says... Most people, I don't know the percentage he cites, but it's a huge percentage of people make a faith decision, a decision about Christ or God or, you know, what their ultimate commitment's going to be before they hit 21. Which says something interesting about where the church's mission field really should be. Actually, maybe you're kind of there, sitting here. Uh, Maybe I'm preaching to the people who you reach before they hit 21. So for me, I'm fit Barnes paradigm. I was 17. Sitting in a group at the home of my high school football coach. The group was called FCA. Have you heard about FCA? Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Oh, yeah, FCA. Yeah, you know FCA? Oh, sure, yeah. They're still around. Very significant ministry. Yeah, they, introduced me to, they introduced me to sort of, uh, I would say, Faith as not a philosophy, but faith as a person. Faith is not necessarily a set of values or concepts or ethics or so on, which I think sometimes mainline faith can sometimes look like that or feel like that. But uh, you know, I have to credit FCA introduced me to the concept of faith as a relationship with a living being, I'm talking about you know Christ. Jesus Christ. Uh, sitting in the living room with my high school football coach uh, out there not far from Memorial High School, 
Uh, he led what the FCA calls a huddle group. That's what they call them. Small, you know, you and I would call it a small group. I had grown up in a church here in Madison, which I think had planted the seeds and, you know, and set the subsoil in place and probably made me one of those people where the soil was more or less ready. For some reason, I never really flipped the switch (laughs) sitting in the pews in my church growing up. But I was 17, and the coach said, hey, if anybody wants to come over to my house, you know, Wednesday nights, you know, we, uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you, we do some Bible study, my wife makes really good cookies, and uh, we talk, <laughs> come on over. You want to know why I really went? There was probably a girl involved. No. Try again. Uh, cookies. No. Think about this. Varsity football coach. Uh, I'm on the team. I see. Why did I go? Wanted to get in his good favor. Bingo, bingo. Yeah. Wanted to play. So I had an ulterior motive. So I went over and sitting in his living room, and I heard him talk about something I'd never really heard described before. Jesus as your friend? Mm-hmm. That was like, what? What? What does that mean? And he would talk about it. His wife would make the cookies. And so then I got to see in that living room, what difference does faith make? And that's a whole other program. I could talk about that for an hour. I won't. But it was pretty amazing. And I remember signing a card that FCA would give you. I hereby place my faith in Jesus Christ and, you know, and uh, put my hope and trust in him, commit to follow him as a disciple all my days, sign your name, put a date, stick it in your wallet. That's what I did. You still have that card? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I imagine it was really significant. And that coach is still in my life. No kidding. He's still a close friend. He's 84. I see him all the time. Uh, he came to my 25th anniversary celebration at the church. Uh, he was a mentor when I went into the military and the Navy to become a chaplain. He was a lifelong Coast Guard officer. Yeah, he and I are still buddies. He lives here in Madison? Yep. It's a great story. Well, so you're 17, all of this happens. You're going into your, you know, you're going into your upper class men years um, at high school. You then make a decision to go to Northwestern. Uh, and then eventually uh, you're off to Princeton um, Theological Seminary. Take us through um, your college and seminary years. Is there anything that stands out? I don't know if they were back-to-back or if you had a little gap in between those two experiences, and I'm asking you to to compress a lot into a short response. But, okay, I'll keep it short. Yeah, what stands out about those those seasons, um, particularly as it relates to your faith journey or just your own maturation as a young man? Uh, okay, college, two things really stand out. Uh, one, I had this amazing day where I feel like somebody showed me the Rosetta Stone mm. and taught me how to write in one day. T.H. Breen. Professor Timothy H. Breen, uh, professor of American history, Northwestern University, uh, powerhouse, transforming, life-changing. How do you do that teaching history? Don't ask me. He did. Spellbinding. Couldn't get into his classes. Filled up. (laughs) You had to know somebody, be somebody, or be first in line. But one of the things he offered every semester, and thank the good Lord, I was actually there when he said you could come if you want to. He said, uh, this is not a requirement of the course, 
this is a freebie. <clears throat> but if you're interested, I do a seminar every semester called 22 Points to Writing Salvation. Hmm. And this was a guy who had caught my attention when it came to the written word and assigning written papers and so on. You remember college? Write me a five-page paper. Write me a 10-page paper. Wasn't that most of what you had? A lot of it. Write me a 20-page paper, right? You know what this guy said? Every time? Guess. Write me a paper as long as you want it to be. No. <laughs> no. Go the other direction. Write me a paragraph. Write me a two-page paper. Two-page paper. Nothing ever longer than two pages. Write me a two-page paper, and it better be... It better be substantive, and it better be condensed, and it better be weighty, and it better say something. And don't BS me, and don't word fluff me, and don't try to impress me. Write me a two-page paper. And you'd get those two-page papers back. Did you ever get a paper back where they maybe put a couple little marks and, you know, something at the bottom, and you can see they spent five minutes? Right. Okay. You get your paper back from T.H. Breen? There were more red on it than your own writing. There's more red ink on it than your typewritten words. And for this guy, it was all about written communication. It was all about writing. So when I heard him say you can come to, uh, come to 22 points to writing salvation, I thought, well, I'm going to check this out. And he had it in this old sort of creaky ancient history teaching building there on the campus where people have been there since the 1800s, and he had it in an upper room. He sat at the old wooden desks, and he's up there at the front, and he just started in. He says, writing can make you or break you. Your writing can make you or break you. He said, I'm going to give you 22 rules that will bring you to salvation for the rest of your writing life. Hmm. And there he went. And I wrote him down. And that has those 22 have shaped my writing for the entire rest of my life. Starting when I was 19 years old and I picked those up, they have guided my path. Uh, I know you've written a book. We're going to talk about that. But um, I'm wondering what was so transformative about the 22 rules. And I wouldn't have identified you primarily as someone who expresses himself through the written word, more the spoken word. What, is, what, what do you think I do more, speak or write? Probably. In an average week as a pastor, what do you think uh, I do well, more? Well, probably write more because you're probably responding to emails. I write and, way more than I speak. Yeah. You know how much I speak? How much do I speak every week? What if I'm preaching a 15-minute message? How, how, how much do I speak in a given week? Well, you speak more than 15 minutes. Okay, let's say I speak 20. I'm speaking 20 minutes if I have one service. But you have meetings. You lead meetings. You do a lot of... Uh, I don't do a lot of talking. Okay. I try when I have a committee meeting, if you read my book, and I know you did, I try to let the people lead the meetings. I don't try to do a lot of soapboxing, talking. I was a meeting last night. It lasted for an hour and a half at the church. I barely said anything. I didn't even open with prayer. I walked in, and the layperson was opening the meeting with prayer, and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. So mostly I write. Yeah, so tell me, so one rule of the 22, and I'd love to see the full list of 22 at some The seem-appear rule. The seem-appear rule. Avoid weasel words. Avoid using weasel words. Have the courage of your convictions. Make up your mind what you want to say about something and say it. Stay away from, it seems to me, which academics... 
That's academic writing. Love. Yeah, you're, you're forced into that. But T.H. Breen did not write like an academic. That's why he sold a million books. Have the courage of your convictions. It appears. It appears to some people. Some people say, no. Think about what you think. Work your noggin. Come to some conclusions and set them out clearly and plainly. Mm-hmm. That's one of 22. That's worth something, don't you think? Has that rule helped you more than hurt you, or has that rule also hurt you at times? Okay, you're sitting me asking me, when did it hurt me? I can't remember a single time. Single time. I can't remember a time. Now, it may have hurt me. It may have hurt me. But I, I can't identify a time I think that that rule really hurt me. Obviously, you don't want to come across as a, a know-it-all. You don't want to come across as my way or the highway. But that wasn't Breen's way at all. Yeah. He was about clarity and conviction. It's about clarity. It's yeah. just about clarity. Just have some, say what you think. Say what you're trying to say. And say it clearly. That was the bottom line for him. And that, that's, that's guided you all the way through. How did that help you in seminary? And isn't it amazing? I'd gone all the way through high school. And I'd gone through a couple of years of college at that point. It was, sort of like, it was sort of like the FCA moment where, oh, my gosh, somebody's telling me something I've never heard. And I've been around people who probably knew this stuff or were aware of this stuff. Nobody ever really just put it out there and said it clearly. It was like an FCA moment for me, just like, whoa. It was, like I say, the Rosetta Stone. Here it is. This will guide you. I'm so grateful. I actually wrote him a letter about 20 years after I said, thank you for 22 points. And he, you know what? I was, he remembered me. That's, that's a powerful story. Well, how did that, how did that uh, influence you as a seminarian? Have you had enough about college? You want to no, no. G- g- give me Keep more. going? Yeah, if you got okay. another, another. The other thing about college was God led me to a church. That was the other thing about college. Two things changed my life, really changed my life. That 90 minutes upstairs in the history room and the good Lord leading me to, to the church in Evanston where I spent all my college years. Was that First Press? First Press, Evanston, yeah, Illinois. I know that, I know that church. Great church. That's where I was really shaped and formed in that church. But it was first Sunday morning, freshman year, and I was coming off FCA, so I woke up in the dorm. The place was as quiet as a tomb. You know what dorms are like on Sunday mornings early? Could have heard a pin drop. But I woke up and I thought, yeah, I should go to church. Couldn't look on the Internet. Didn't exist. <laughs> but I'd heard there was a Presbyterian church on Church Street. So I found my way, walked in there, worshipped at First Press Evanston. Isn't that amazing that I found that place on the first Sunday freshman year? That's, that's kind of a cool thing. I call that a, a God thing. And I sat there, and, and the sermon grabbed me, and the pastor, you know, really grabbed me. You know what I mean. And uh, walking out afterwards, I approached the guy who was standing there in the church door. Everybody's shaking hands, so, you know, I, I shook his hand. And he leaned forward as he grasped my hand. And I didn't expect this. I'm thinking, and there were probably, a, you know, this is a church with a couple thousand members, and the place was packed. Who am I? A college freshman, just a kid? I'll never forget this. He leaned forward. He shook my hand. He looked right into my eyes, and he said, And who are you? Tell me your name. I really was not prepared for that. I'd never experienced that in church. I grew up in a church in Madison. I really usually cut around the pastor, so I didn't have to do that thing. 
my parents would do that. I didn't do that. I actually didn't think the pastor, why did I think the pastor didn't want to know my name? Never dawned on me the pastor would want to know my name. That never even entered my mind in those days. Well, he said, tell me your name. And I told him, Kirk Morlich. And he, he, he smiled. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, do you have any relatives in Oklahoma? <laughs> and I said, what? I said, my grandpa lives there and my grandma, my dad was born there. And he said, I was your grandparents' pastor. Hmm. First press Oklahoma City? I said, I said, yeah. He said, I was your grandpa's pastor. He said, was your grandpa's funeral? And I said, yeah. He said, that was me. Wow. And I'm shaking hands with the guy. Yeah, that's amazing. I was in that church every Sunday my college years. Uh, ministry of that church changed my life. It's probably why I'm a pastor today. Wow, powerful story. Thank you for, for sharing that. Did you decide to attend seminary right after college? No. I was planning to be a high school teacher and coach sports and then become a principal. That's what I wanted to do. That was my plan all the way through. And every quarter, Northwest was on the quarter system, so every quarter when you register for classes, they give you a little card you had to write at the bottom. Uh, what, what did it say? Career plan, or career, something like that. To, you know, um, hoped for a career or career projection, something like that. You had to fill out that blank every year on your card. And I don't still have those cards, but I remember them. And if you looked at my cards for the first three years of college, they would all said the same thing. High school teacher slash coach slash principal. Freshman, sophomore, junior year, uh, and then senior year, fall quarter was when I, I just said, that's when I started to really feel the tug. It was like tug, 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 tug. What is this? Voice? No. Vision? Not really. Dreams? No. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul thrown down from his horse? That, not, no way. Tug, 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 tug. And it was not resistible tug. It was not a resistible thing. It was like you felt yourself being drawn, pulled, and you suddenly realized, uh-oh, I'm going here. <laughs> I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, this cut throw everything off. I, I was doing my student teaching. I was like a quarter away from my certificate. I, mean, I had plans. But it was tug, 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 like past, maybe a pastor of a church? Senior of college. How old are you then? So are you 20? What are you? You're going to know that answer better than me. 20, 21, 22. Okay, well, that's where I was. And it was a little scary for me because I thought, well, hold it. This is, I mean, I haven't taken, I haven't studied religion. I mean, I'm not equipped for this. I, what do I know about this? It just seemed like, uh, you know, like you feel you're supposed to become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> In a way, it's a little awe-inspiring, but it's also a little scary. And you think this could be dangerous. This could be bad for your health. Nobody I know does this. Well, not really. I know. Anyway. So I started asking questions, and I asked my college pastor, and I asked my pastor here in Madison. I'd come home from breaks and go out to lunch with him, my pastor from the church right here. Right. You know what he said to me? My pastor was my kind of mentor growing up here, and he had been pastor of my church. We went to lunch, and I said, "This is I'm feeling this tug. 
You know what he said to me? I'll never forget this. He leaned across the table and looked at me and said, don't do it if you can do anything else. Hmm. Don't do it if you can do anything else. How was I supposed to take that? Uh, but my pastor down there at First Press Evanston was very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, this is cool. So anyway, I changed what I was writing on my card. Started to change what I was writing on my card. And then I said, well, what should I do? How should I check this out? He said, well, you might want to go to a place where there's other people who feel the same tug. Uh, where's that? You know what he said? He said, well, here's where I went to seminary. You could go there. You could go visit. So I did. Princeton Seminary. I'm going out there. <laughs> it's like, you know, like late in college, kid. And what did I expect? You know what I honestly expected that said seminary? I'd seen Holy Name in Madison. Have you ever seen Holy Name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought, okay, this is going to look like a convent, and it's going to look like people walking around in, like, robes. I mean, honestly, that was kind of what I expected. It would look very austere and solemn and spiritual. And so I went there, and I thought, well, this will kill the tug. <laughs> I thought, I'll go there, it'll kill the tug, and I'll see. No, I'm supposed to teach and coach like I want to. Guess what happened? They were really friendly. They are really nice. They are great. I could relate to them. They put me in a room with a guy who wants to be a pastor, and he was wonderful. I could actually relate to him. He seemed normal. So the uh, green light to, to, to go um, at that point. Yeah. So I didn't go for two years. I want to get some real-world experience, so I worked for a year. And then Northwestern asked me to write a book, uh, which I did. I spent a year on that. Oh, I didn't know about that. Hmm? That's my other book. You won't be interested. <laughs> you work with a professor on that book? No. Wrote it on my own. What was the book? Uh, it's called Thanks to the Memories. Have you ever heard of the Tasty Puddin' Show at a place like uh, uh, Yale? I think it's Yale. It's, uh, they I say They say the Tasty Puddin' Show at Yale, they say it's the oldest college musical. in the. Okay. It's not. Northwestern has it. You've got it. That's exactly right. Northwestern has one. It's the oldest college-produced musical in the country. Northwestern, if you've heard, is a big performing arts school. Mm-hmm. I, I do know that. They own late-night television. A lot of graduates yeah. are... A lot of people come out of there. Uh, you know, Ann Margaret, McLean Stevenson, Tony Randall. Nobody's going to know these names. Charlton Heston. One or two of your listeners are going to know who that is. P.S. That's Moses. The <laughs> Ten Commandments. Right. A lot of people come out. So they wanted to write a book about this because it was his 50th year. So where did you meet your wife? Was it after college? High school. High school. Okay, tell, I know you have a story about meeting her. Tell that, tell that story. So uh, we were Romeo and Juliet together. Star-crossed lovers, forbidden path. You know, Romeo and Juliet, some people say they might have been 15. Uh, the play doesn't actually state their ages. But, you know, various Shakespeareans pointed out, Mary, Vir- Virgin Mary might have been 14, 15. Romeo and Juliet might have been early teenage, not even college age. And just sort of, what was this incredible love they had? How can you do that when you're that young? Can you do? Can you fall that hard for somebody when you're 15, 16? Shakespeare obviously believed that was possible. Some people... Minimize that. They call it puppy love. Like, it's not real. I'll lean towards Shakespeare. 
I think it can be very real and very powerful and very profound. It happened to me. But um, I saw Faith in junior of high school, and uh, she saw me, and something happened. Hmm. And it wasn't puppy love. It was more Shakespearean. It was more Romeo and Juliet, including the forbidden part. Romeo and Juliet were not supposed to be together. The Montagues and the Capulets did not talk. And it was completely forbidden what they were doing, so they met secretly. Everybody was against them. That's exactly what happened to, in my story. Faith, I learned, was something called an Orthodox Christian. What I heard was the word Orthodox, and that's what people said back then. Oh, she's Orthodox. They didn't attach the word Christian. Why? I didn't hear that part. What I heard was she's Orthodox. I didn't know what that was. Where do you meet that in Wisconsin? <laughs> and I was not. And so not so much from my family, but from her family. We're talking 50 years ago now. Do you remember? You are aware of the fact, your listeners, this is going to surprise them. There was a time in America when Catholics were not supposed to marry Protestants. That was a real thing. Uh, we met and sort of fell hard when Orthodox were not supposed to marry anybody but Orthodox. So it was a no from her, I'd say significantly from her side, from the time we were right there, 16. But we had this Romeo and Juliet thing going on, so what we were going to do. So, <clears throat> so I used to call her best friend who lived next door to her house, and I'd say, Laura, could you call Faith and tell her I want to pick her up? Laura would call Faith. Faith would walk down the block and hide in some bushes at the bottom of her street. I'd drive by slow down at the bushes, and Faith would jump into my car. <laughs> and we'd go have, do a, have our date, and I'd bring her back, and I'd drop her off into bushes. But she had three older brothers at the school who, to me, all looked really dangerous <laughs> and really mean and really intimidating. And one of them was a state champion wrestler, like he could break me in half with one hand. So it was, we were living dangerously. Uh, but we kept it up. Yeah. But there came senior year. All her sisters had been married by the time she's 18. It was time for her to get married. Not for me. And, and back then it was, no, you can't do this. Um, especially from her family. You don't marry somebody outside the faith. So we graduated. I went to Northwestern. She went to UW here in Madison. She was a varsity cheerleader at the Badger along the sidelines in Camp Randall and, you know, on the hockey rink and in the basketball along the <laughs> I'd see her when the Badgers came to play Northwestern or when I came up here for a game, but we knew we were not supposed to. She did the dutiful thing. Uh, she married somebody who was Greek Orthodox, and I went off. Joined the Navy, lived around the world, served a church in London, England, was in New York, was in Philadelphia, just was everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Never found that same love, although I came close to marrying a couple of people, dating and so on, but it just was never Juliet. And I thought, well, that just doesn't feel right. So I never married. <laughs> Got a call to serve this church in Wisconsin, you know, a zillion years later. Came back as a bachelor pastor. By the way, isn't it amazing a, a small church in Wisconsin would call a bachelor to be their pastor? 
And that, that would have been, how old would you have been at that time? 36. 36, okay. And I came back, and it was pretty lonely, but I was sitting in the church one night. It was a Saturday night. And by the way, the church back then was like 65 members. Everybody was healthy. Nobody died. Didn't have any funerals. They hardly had any weddings. It just about killed me in those early days. I was the Maytag repairman. Now, that's so old, you probably didn't even know what that reference means. I do. I do know You that. do? I do. Okay. I was really lonely. Really lonely. Phone never rang. I sat in my office. Just please. I used to look at the phone. Please ring. Somebody, somebody want me. Somebody need me. Please. I visited the whole congregation within like 30 days. And then I did. I was done. Now what do I do? So I started visiting them again. And a woman, I'll remember her name. I'm not going to say her name. She said, she opened her door and she said, hi, Pastor Kirk. You know, you've already been here. <laughs> you've already been here. Like, and the meta message was, you don't need to come in again. So it was really bad. I was sitting there on a Saturday night working on a sermon in a building with no other people in it where the phone never rang and no traffic sounds outside. Really thinking, can I survive this? And the telephone rang. Guess who it was? Faith. Guess where she was? She was in Madison. She was State Street Brats. Your listeners will recognize that name. A lot of them who are in the campus anyway. State Street Brats is like a block from us. High school buddy of ours owned the place. Still does. Still does. Saw him the other night. I was over at State Street Brats. He saw her. She was here for an Optimus convention. Sitting group of people, table of a group of optimists, and he said to her, "Hey, Faith, guess what?" And she said, "What?" She said, "He said, Kirk's back in town." And she said, "What? What? 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 What?" And she ended up calling me that night. I answered the phone at the church. I said, "What? Who's this?" Faith, this is my old high school girlfriend. And she said, "We're here in Madison. Why don't you come down?" Well, I did. I went down to State Street Brats. <laughs> And I walked in and had a beer, and they were sitting at a table and so on and so forth. And, okay, this is fine. This is nice. Um, wow, she looks great. <laughs> Got up to leave, and she followed me to the door. You know what she said to me? She said, have you heard about my situation? And I said, well, I don't know. What's your situation? She said, uh, I'm not married anymore. And at that moment, there used to be a jukebox at State Street Brats. For your listeners, that's a machine that used to play records. Um, somebody dropped a quarter in. I could hear the quarter drop. And a song came on. Almost the exact moment she said that to me. And you know what the song was? My Boyfriend's Back. <laughs> My Boyfriend's Back? She said to me, I'm not married anymore. Fear overwhelmed me. I just thoughts were racing through my head. Oh my gosh, where could this be going? What could this mean? Where could this lead? I actually knew at that moment that she had a son. And one promise I'd made to myself, because I'd been to a lot of Christian clinics, conferences, workshops, they all tell you who you should marry. You can take workshops at Christian events, who you should marry, and they give you a list what this person's supposed to look like. They should be this, 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 to be pleasing to the Lord. Uh, she had a kid, and 
one of the things on the conference list is, oh, no, no, don't do that. And, oh, no, 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 not anybody who's been married before. And so I just felt terror. I actually thought if this goes where it could go, I'll lose my job. I'll get fired. It was bad. I ran out of the place as fast as I could go. <laughs> and I didn't look back. <laughs> and I didn't call her. <laughs> I just tried to stay away. Well, that didn't work very well. Uh, and uh, about two years later, on the 21st anniversary of our first date in high school, I got down on one knee, and I proposed to her. And we've been married now for almost 30 years. It's a great story. Pretty incredible, isn't it? I feel, I feel like I've got a really thorough and a vivid picture of your formative years, your growing up years. I can relate to getting married a little later. Well, let's talk about your time as a Reserve Navy chaplain. Um, you served as a chaplain in the U.S. Navy for 30 years, uh, for nearly 30 years, retiring just last year. Yeah. And I'm just fascinated about this experience. I know it prompted you, um, I know it took you lots of places. What caused you, uh, prompted you to join the Navy? Um, what was behind that? And then um, I'd like to ask some questions um, once I get kind of a, a broad background about responsibilities of being a chaplain in the Navy. I know you had a deployment after uh, 9-11. Multiple deployments. Yeah, well, the first one came right after the towers crashed. Yeah, and I know it was for about a year or two, I think. You're yep. away from, so, but how, where did the decision first, when did that first uh, happen, and what took you into the Navy? And uh, I love ministry with young gur people. You must have a bit of that bug looking at what you do. Uh, one of the reasons being they make faith decisions. Younger people make faith decisions. <clears throat> uh, and so I pretty much always through most of my ministry worked either with college students or campus ministry. You may know I was the president of the Press House Board here on the UW campus for a number of years. I'm just attracted to ministry with people who are thinking, making life-shaping decisions. Right. Uh, so I did a lot of, tons of college work. That was mostly where I was until I went to serve this church in Philadelphia, and, uh, and I was the associate pastor there. The pastor was on the staff, looked at me one day, and he said, you know, he said, you, you like working with young people, don't you? And I said, yeah, I really do. He said, you ever thought about, um, military chaplaincy. He said, the average age is 24. I said, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I said, I'm not military. You're talking the wrong guy. <laughs> no, I'm not. Wear a uniform, salute people, follow orders. Uh -uh, that's not me. <laughs> he said, how do you know? <laughs> I said, trust me. <laughs> he said, have you ever seen it up close? I said, No. He said, how do you know? <laughs> he said, would you mind if I showed it to you? It turns out he was a retired military chaplain. So he took me down to the Navy base in Philadelphia. In those days, it's called the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. He walked me around, and we talked to these young people who were walking around. And it was kind of like a college campus. <laughs> and they looked like college students, except for haircuts, you know, and and they were really fantastic kids. 
And uh, I just, I felt drawn to them. And he took me for lunch at the officer's club, and he brought in another guy who was a chaplain. And this guy had lunch with us, and I'm sitting there talking with this guy, and he just seemed like me. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, hold on, this guy can do this. Maybe this is more open than I'm thinking. And then he said some things that really stuck with me. He said, you know, most of these young people, a huge percentage, have never talked to anybody in Christian ministry. A lot of them unchurched. Hmm. A lot of them from broken families. Uh, a lot of them have never been to Sunday school. A lot of them never heard about Jesus. Uh, a lot of them, you know, he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, you know what they know about the Christian faith? I said, what? He said, what they see on TV. And he said, you know what they see on TV? I said, I'm afraid to guess. <laughs> and he said, and he named the big televangelists, and you know who I'm talking about. And the money shakedown artists and, the, you know, big makeup, big hair, jet planes, build my own theme park. He said, that's what they know about the Christian faith. And I said, well, that's a shame. He said, well, you could make a difference. What would I have to do? He said, well, how about two days a month and a couple weeks in the summer? And, and he said, they are making life decisions. They are facing sometimes life and death. He said, sometimes they're headed to, to war, which really sobers you up fast and gets you thinking about, I could die, whereas most 20-somethings aren't thinking, I could die. And he said, the ministry opportunities are stunning. So, again, it was the same thing. Would you like to see this up close? And <laughs> okay, I guess. And then here came, that, here came that confounding tug again. Here came another tug. Oh, my goodness, what will this mean? And I'm thinking about my job, and I'm thinking about, you know, they're asking me what I do at full time. I'm thinking, this mean leave the... Yeah, and this is just for our listeners. This is before your move back to Wisconsin. Before so my move back to you're Wisconsin, single at this and point. before nine eleven. Yeah, so you're oh, well, long before that. But Way you're, before. But you're you're single at this point. Mm-hmm. This is somewhere between age twenty, post post seminary and age thirty. I'm like twenty eight. Yeah. He invited me to shadow him around, so I walked around with him, met these kids. Sorry, I'm using the word kids. I hope that's not offensive to anybody. I don't mean that to be offensive. I have nothing but respect for these young people, but they are generally younger i will swear to you and i've been there you know on the tarmac when people are loading up to go to afghanistan or iraq john i am not kidding you if you were standing beside me you would actually look at me and say are some of these kids old enough to be doing that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'd say john they're 18 they've got to be 18 and then i would say oh wait a minute no they can be 17 with parents permission wow that's who we send to war yeah but anyway, I felt the tug. The tug became stronger. It became overpowering. I said yes. I signed up, and I started two days a month, two weeks in the summer, and that's how it began. And it lasted 30 years until last 26 year. 26 years. It's institutional ministry, like campus ministry is, is sort of institutional ministry, college ministry. You're working at an institution. Right. Hospital ministry, prison chaplaincy. It's, it's, it's chaplaincy. What were your responsibilities as a Navy chaplain. Um, what, does campus, you, what does a campus minister do? Pretty much the same stuff. Same stuff. It's just a different campus. They're wearing a different bunch of different clothes. I don't have to, I don't have to stay in shape. Um, you do. You, you actually... You have to... Okay. It's, it is a mission field. It's a mission. It's cross-cultural mission. Cross-cultural mission. Uh, my seminary was 
very strong in preparing people for cross-cultural mission. The chair of our mission department when I went to seminary was a guy by the name of Moffat. The Moffat family basically <laughs> took the gospel <laughs> to South Korea. Uh, incredible cross-cultural mission training. Uh, so, if, yes, if you're a cross-cultural missionary in that world, you have to communicate with the natives. You have to learn their language. They speak a different language than you and I speak. Their military language is military words. They speak in acronyms. Everything is about initials. Um, are you doing your AT? Have you filled out your resked? Have you done your SRA? Uh, have you notified your PNOC? PNOK? Primary next of kin? You also have a SNOC, your secondary next of kin. Um, so you have to learn the language. You have to speak it fluently. Uh, they won't listen to you if you are out of shape. You lose all credibility. If you... If your body fat is not in standards, you won't even get a hearing. Uh, you have to dress in native garb. You have to dress like the natives. Um, Moffat used to tell us when the first Christian missionaries went into South Korea, they sometimes dressed like Buddhist monks. Is that a betrayal? Or is that a cross-cultural mission strategy? That's a betrayal. Dress like a Buddhist monk? What are you doing? That's denying Christ. You should be proud of who you are. No, that's not. Uh -uh. My grandfather was a missionary in Africa among the Zulus. Uh, he ate what they ate. <laughs> you know, he lived with them. My grandmother was with him. My dad was born there. So anyway, you got to dress. You got to wear what they wear. You got to get your hair cut the way they get their hair cut. They look at your hair. When you approach them, they're looking at your hair. Do you have any little hairs poking up off the edge of your ear? Do you have any hairs in your, this thing in your earlobe? Do you have any hairs poking out of your nose? You know what? They've just dismissed you. <laughs> They're not going to tell you that. You get no hearing. You walk up and say, hey, can I invite you to church on Sunday? You're not, they're not paying attention. You have no credibility. So it's very, uh, it's, you have to be on your game. Uh, and you have to be able to do push-ups like they do, sit-ups like they do. You have to be able to run with them, keep up. You don't want to beat them. One of the worst things I ever saw a Navy chaplain do, and I'm not going to name any names, but now you tell me if you think this is smart for ministry or not. This Navy chaplain, the guy, worked his butt off to become a PT stud. That's military lingo, PT, physical training. You know what stud means. You know, P.T. Rock, hard guy. This chaplain worked himself up to become a P.T. stud where he could out-push-up, out-sit-up, and outrun pretty much any U.S. Marine. And he had a big run one day, and the whole battalion is going out, and the chaplain lines up. Okay, so for me as a chaplain, you're lining up to run with them. You know what I'm thinking my job is at that moment? My job as a as a minister of Christ, <laughs> as a representative of Jesus, his love, his care, particularly for the least, the last, and the lost, I think my job that day is to be able to run more or less keeping up with the, you know, with the best of them, or at least the upper percentage, to be able to do that, because that's how I get credibility with them, because they know that. 
But I actually start that run thinking my job is to hang towards the back. I'm supposed to be back there with the struggler. I'm supposed to be back there with the guy who's huffing and puffing. Bless his heart. He's it's going to make me cry. Sorry. I've just done this too many times. You know, the guy who's worked his butt off to be able to run at all and fights a devilish battle to keep his body fat under control and is back there perspiring and sweating and trying to not have heat stroke and just trying to serve his country and willing to put his life on the line, I think I'm supposed to be beside that guy, running with him. Even though that means I'm going like, <laughs> to have a terrible time. But that's where I think I'm supposed to be. Well, this Navy chaplain, you know what he did? The gun went off. <laughs> he sprints out of the gate. He races past everybody. Uh, he stakes out his spot at the front of the crowd, and he sails across the finish line uh, ahead of everyone. And when you get up to that guy and look at the T-shirt he's wearing, you know what he's got written on the back of his shirt? It says, Ha ha, Marine. You were just passed by a Navy chaplain. Ha ha. What does that buy you in ministry? I, I think probably if you were interviewing him right now, he would say, I passed everybody. Therefore, I gained all these new, you know, <laughs> opportunities <laughs> to invite people into relationship with Christ. So I guess I just took the other view. I would always think, what would Jesus do? But it's an amazing ministry. Amazing ministry. By the way, just for your listeners, you would have been terrific. How old are you? 54. Too late. You would have been terrific. You would have loved it. It's phenomenal. You're working alongside imams. I worked with imams. Do you know we have imams in uniform? Do you know we have imams wearing the military uniform of the United States? Why doesn't anybody ever talk about that? Our adversaries, our adversaries sometimes say we are trying to eliminate Islam. You've heard that. They say we're on a crusade. They say we're trying to annihilate their faith. Really? Uh, there was a huge United States aircraft carrier that was in the Middle East. Pulled into one of the trips they offered the sailors on the ship was to go visit Mecca. <laughs> You know how many sailors signed up for this ship? I wasn't there. This is what I heard. Over 100 sailors, many of them Muslim, went to see Mecca. Mm-hmm. Why don't we ever hear about that? I don't ever hear anybody talk about that. I worked with imams. I worked with rabbis. I worked with people of other faiths. I'll tell you, it's a lot harder to stay in your tight little, is it your tight little Christian box? In the military than it would be, or in, in general society than it is in the military. And what I'm saying, here's what I'm trying to say. If you're if you're a minister, if you're trying to serve Christ, uh, in that setting in the military, it's a lot harder to stay in your little pre-constructed Christian box. Oh, I don't believe women should ever be pastoring. I don't believe this should ever happen. I could never serve communion next to a Missouri Synod Lutheran because I'm Wisconsin, you know, I am ELCA. It vanishes. It just goes away. And a lot of there there are a lot of interfaith dialogue. You have uh, chaplains representing different faith traditions and all over the place. Yeah, it's it's a very diverse all over the place. It's incredible. It's incredible ministry. And guess what else? No committee meetings. No church board. 
no building campaigns, no property acquisition, uh, <laughs> no, no, no staff to chase after, no stewardship campaigns. You know who gives you all the money for that ministry? You do, the taxpayers. U.S. taxpayers. Yeah. Now, well, how can they be paying for ministry? That's unconstitutional, right? How do you get around that one? Because they're not paying for any particular ministry. They're, they're just, they're, it's every kind of ministry you can think of. What, 370 faith groups? Something like that? It's amazing. Now, one of the things that is different than campus ministry, you liken it to campus ministry. Some ways, yeah. Yeah, in some ways. Um, and I said, no, I don't have to stay in shape in campus ministry. But, um, but one of the things um, that is different and very different is that you have extended deployments. Yes, and um, I wonder if you might just share that part of being a a reserve chaplain. Um, I know you were away for up to a year. Yeah. And that happened a couple of times yep. over your... Yep. Yeah. Well, okay, so... And you're pastoring a church full-time, yep. so you have, to, you have to work with your congregation to leave yep. for a year. Yep. Yeah. So, well, the first thing that needs to happen is the congregation has to decide, do we want somebody pastoring us who could be called to minister to somebody else? Right? That's an important decision for a congregation. Because it means if our pastor could be called to minister to somebody else, that means what? We could be without our pastor for a while. So that's an important decision for a congregation. And there are congregations in America that answer that question by saying, no. Our pastor is ours. Our pastor belongs to us. Our pastor's job is to preach to us, take care of us, visit us, minister to us. So do we want somebody who could be yanked away and have to minister to somebody else? No, thank you. That's like saying I want my doctor to be pulled away, and where did my doctor go? There are some congregations that say, remarkably, you know what? We're going to say yes to that because we're going to see it as part of our ministry. We're going to see it as part of our outreach. We're going to see it as part of our extension of Christ's love to the world. In fact, we're going to call it one of our mission programs. Uh, we're going to be proud of it. And we're going to feel like we are sacrificing for the sake of others. That's what my church did. And they're amazing, incredible. And if anybody's listening to this, if you, ever want, if, if you ever want the most incredible congregation when it comes to support of a pastor who's also ministering in some other area at the same time. So, yeah, I went away for a long time and ministered in different settings. Okay, what do you want to hear about? Uh, okay, I'll give you the, let me give you the ship. Uh, you ever seen the big white ship on TV, the big white hospital ship? They made a lot of news during COVID. Big white ship, red cross on the side. One's called the Comfort. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen One's it. called the Mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Comfort on the East Coast. Mercy on the West Coast. I was the, what they call the command chaplain on the Mercy. Six months at sea. <laughs> There's a lot of water out there. There's a lot of water out there, John. Oh, my goodness. But what an ministry opportunity. Not everybody would want this. But so here's your congregation. <laughs> You're living on a ship with them. These are the people in your worship service. And by the way, the worship service on that ship got so big, we had to move it out of the chapel. We had to take it into another place. It was packing out. Isn't that nice? How many sailors? On the ship, about 2,000, I think, was the total ship's company. But that included not just uniformed sailors. 
There's military components from eight different nations. So you had New Zealand uniforms. You know, you had, I don't know who was there. I can't even remember the whole list. It's been a while. But, you know, you see uniforms from all over the globe walking around. NGOs, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations from all over the world walking around that ship. Uh, you know, Operation, what's the Fix the Cleft Palate? Operation Smile, I think it's called. They fix your cleft palate. Sure, yeah. They bring all their nurse, doctors, nurses, their gear. Uh, anyway, just all these incredible people on this place. So you'd go into ports? And, yeah, you and... pull up, drop anchor, and you're the hospital for a while. You're the hospital for a while. There are people who've never been to one, never seen a doctor, never seen a nurse. Uh, that's a completely other show where I could talk for two hours. I'll give you okay, maybe two quick, just never forget this moment. So we're in, this was uh, Vietnam. And we're going ashore. Welcome, welcome. Smiles and so on. And you think back. Didn't want us to fly our helos over that country. That may, I don't know where they are now, but then, please don't fly your helos. Why? You want to guess why? Why please don't fly your helos? Don't bring your medical gear in. Don't do helo transports out to the ship. Just don't chop your helos over people's heads. Any idea why? No place else said that. Only them. Memories of the Vietnam War. You got it. Bingo. Good guess. Mm -hmm. There it is. Traumatizing. Particularly the older folks who remember those years. Mm -hmm. But so we had this um, whole ophthalmology optometry operation on the ship. You know, I mean, talk about Shopco Optical times 10. You know, uh, I mean, what they bring? I don't even remember the number. What they? I think they brought thirty thousand pairs of glasses on the ship, like every prescription, and they could make them and so on. And these are really just, in some ways, they're you're, you're attending to U.S. military officers, but also it's just a humanitarian effort in in ways as well, right? Okay, I'm confused by the question. You're saying I'm ministering to only military officers? No, no, the the actual ship, the the focus of the 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 ship and the who are they treating? Who are they treating? Ordinary people. Yeah, ordinary people. Right. Like villagers. I mean, I mean it's not a story that's often told. No, villagers, locals, say natives, uh, Joe. Joe and Mary Schmo, you know, who who lives there, you know. Yeah, it's just they're not cream of the crop. They're not. It's like, you know, my dad's been a physician in Madison for years. Cardiologist, I think first one in Madison. Used to drive up to Adam's Friendship, up to Reedsburg. He'd go to lots of towns because they didn't have a cardiologist up there, and he'd see anybody. That's what the hospital ship does. By the way, why don't we tell this story? Why don't we ever talk about this? Yeah, I was going to say, that's not a story that's. Why don't we tell this story? Yeah. Whole time I was on the ship, Faith is watching the news. Not a peep. Not a peep back here. I'm seeing these unbelievable things we're doing as a nation. Not a peep. Anyway, okay, two quick snapshots. One, so they bring their, all the, all the eye doctor folks come rolling ashore. <clears throat> there we are in Vietnam. I think it was Vietnam. And they set up their, they set up, you know, we'd usually be in a big area, um, and they usually put up, like, snow fence kind of stuff around it. Because they had to control, otherwise it's otherwise it'd be almost biblical, in in uh, phenomenon. You know, you just 
So it'd be thousands of people rushing their place, bringing their baby, which we did see. I did see that. I have pictures of that kind of stuff. But at least they're all thousands thronging at the gate. Yeah, there's a line. There's a, it, it's controlled. Right. But here comes this old guy, and his daughter's bringing him in. I think he was like 90 or something, or 95. He looked like he was 150. <laughs> and they brought him in, and he looked just spry, wiry, skin-leathered, you know, brown, like he'd been outside, like he'd just, you know, just he's an amazing-looking guy. And his daughter brought him in, and, you know, she, um, she was probably in her 70s. And I'm looking at him, I'm thinking, it was so what's with this guy? And sometimes they're pulling tapeworms out of people's noses, and you know it's just like it, 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 just tape parasite infestation all over the place. And uh, this guy comes in, and it turns out his deal is uh, he's never been able to see, can't see, and uh, doesn't know what his daughter looks like, doesn't know what his grandkids look like, doesn't know what his wife looks like, I guess. And they brought him in, and it turns out he wasn't blind, they determined. He wasn't blind. He just had this really severe refractory problem of some kind with the lens. It wasn't even like a, 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 a what's the thing they pull out of your Cataract. eye? Cataract. It wasn't that. It was something they thought they could fix with the right lenses. <laughs> and so I was sitting there, and I had a chance to talk with this guy with an interpreter. They give you an interpreter. Ministry with an interpreter. That's another conversation. But anyway, so they bring out three or four different pairs of glasses, and they're, and they're putting them on this guy. Never had glasses on his entire life. He doesn't even know what they are. When they first go, he's like, you can't see what I'm doing. I'm playing with my glasses, and like, what are these? And uh, so then the uh, female, Opto, sits there and says, okay, I think these are going to be the ones. <laughs> I think these are. I think we got what we need. She steps forward. She places these glasses on his eyes, and he looks down. And I can see him really. I can see his eyebrows pop up. Then he looks up, and his daughter's hand was on his leg, and she squeezed his leg because I think she felt this pulse of hope. And he looked at her, and it was. Biblical. It was goosebump city. He saw his daughter. And the look on his face, I mean, Rembrandt could have painted it. Unbelievable. And then she went and grabbed his grandchildren. He mm. saw them. He this was I was blind and now, now I see. see. Yeah. Right out of Matthew. You know, the blind man, the man born blind whom Jesus healed, you know, people used to ask him, well, how did he do this? What did he do to you? And, you know, in the Matthean account, we read, this poor guy keeps saying, I don't know. I don't know what he did. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. Hmm. And that was this. 30 snack and snapshot, sitting there with that one day along the rail of the ship, <clears throat> and I hadn't gone ashore yet. I had a choice. I'm going to minister on the ship, which is where the oper uh, 12 operating rooms uh, ICU. It's like being a hospital chaplain. Or I could go ashore where the people are bringing the sick. I hadn't gone ashore yet. I used to go mostly go ashore. Um, 
Although sometimes they'll just sit right there in the operating theater and you're leaning down watching the surgeons operate. Like you say, do you mind if I walk? Come on in, chaplain. Can you do that? And can I do that in Madison? Who's going to let me in with operating? <laughs> Back there, it's like, yeah, come on in. But anyway, I'm watching the people come aboard the ship and here up the gangplank comes this. Obviously looked like a teenage girl. Looked like she's probably maybe 18 or 19. Walking up the gangplank and... I did a double take because it was a little bit startling at first, a little bit shocking at first to see her come walking up because right next to her head on her shoulder was this gigantic hump or lump, just sort of like gigantic. It was like supersized cauliflower growth kind of thing right on her shoulder, jamming up next to her face. I mean, big, big, like as big almost the size of her head. And it was pushing her head way over to the side, and she was walking kind of off-center. And it was like, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was just bizarre. I'd never seen anything like that. She comes walking up the plank. And it was like an 18-, 19-year-old girl. I thought right away, two things. You could see the look of hope in her eyes, like maybe my life is about to change. But then I thought about this. I thought, this is an 18-year-old female. And I thought, I'll bet. This crosses cultures. I bet 18-year-old females cross-culturally really care a lot about how they appear. I don't have evidence for that. I'm not Margaret Mead, but I'm guessing that that's probably true. Because she was wearing a beautiful dress, very colorful. And, you know, isn't this sort of um, male sexual response, highly visual, as males are. I'm thinking that crosses cultures. I think, I'm think i thinking that's human, not just <laughs> Western or whatever. So think of what it's like to grow up her whole life with this giant lump right next to her head. It, it was shocking to look at. You, you really had to kind of swallow and then kind of brace yourself. She come up to that gangplank. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to race to the end. It's four days later. I saw her in post-op. <laughs> lying in a bed that thing is totally benign there's nothing cancerous about that at all this is something that apparently happens it's not it's completely benign all it takes is somebody to cut that thing off and our surgeons did that like in a couple hours and there she's lying in bed and it's gone she's beautiful she's smiling she's radiant this is done by an american hospital vessel and nobody will ever hear this story. Powerful. I could talk all day about those experiences. I want to give you a chance to talk about First, Presbyter- First Presbyterian Church, Wanakee. I know that's been a special place. You've been there a long time. Um, you will wrap up your service there next year. Uh, Lord in, willing. Lord willing. About 10 months from now. What would you want um, others to know about that church community? A grace place. <laughs> it's a grace place. It's, uh, I think, you know, I haven't done any kind of nationwide survey or anything like that, but um, there's just a lot of grace in that congregation. It, 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 it's, it's an incredibly accepting place. I still marvel sometimes that they didn't look for the perfect poster pastor. They could have, you know, I mean, don't churches, when they're looking for a pastor, don't they want to hire a middle to, young to middle-aged guy typically a lot of them with a perfect 
you know, wife doesn't have to be beautiful, but want her to be a perfect pastor's wife, two ideal kids living this sort of ideal Christian family life. Isn't that who they want? That's the ones I've generally familiar. Well, you know, why'd they hire me? That's one question. But why 20 years before me, why did they hire? And we're going back into the, I don't know, just the 70s now or I mean, divorce used to be pretty scandalous in this country. Like you didn't know anybody who was divorced. Now that's kind of all you know. But but they hired way before me a divorced pastor who had custody of, I think, four, I'm not sure, I think four children, to be their pastor. That is almost as weird as, you know, the families you see in the Bible. <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, sleeping with their maids and, you know, and and what happened to Mary and Joseph and you're pregnant and what's the, you know. It's almost like really bizarre, strange. Well, that's when I decided I think this is a gracious place. And they, they've proven that. I, hmm. I would say that's very true of them. Some, I also think there's kind of two kinds of churches. Some congregations are hard on pastors. And then some pastors are hard on congregations. Mm. Mm-hmm. Again, if anybody's shopping after I'm not there anymore, they are a church. They are a church. Some pastors have been hard on them. They're not hard on pastors. Hmm. They just... Love us, and we'll be grateful, and we'll join you in serving God. Your commitment to community. Wanakee is, for those who don't know, it's a small, relatively small community that um, butts up against Madison. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a bedroom. It would have been rural at one point. Then it became exurban at some point. Then it became suburban which is what it is now. Your um, sense of value for a community-oriented church, um, what would you say, I, I know you probably are able to affirm churches in different kinds of styles and contexts, and you know, you've probably been around long enough to see churches um, serve well in lots of different varieties, shapes, and forms. But what would you say in the affirmative mode of a church like First Presbyterian Church, Wanakee, that has really been rooted in its community and really has had a strong identity in its sense of community or the city that it serves. So what would I have to say about a church that is trying to make a difference in the community where it resides? Yeah, and maybe resist some of the other temptations to just get like, bigger and bigger and bigger or to, you know, to, to become a virtual, digital church that oh, has oh, lots oh, of yeah, I'm not into that. I'm not into that. No, I'm not into how big we can get, how far can we broadcast, what kind of an online gang can we build up. No, I'm not about that at all. I'm really not. Um, I'm not about how many campuses can we open. I don't even really like the word campus. That word bothers me. Don't ask me why. Uh, but no, I'm very much about I guess my my picture of church is it is it is where it is, <laughs> and it tries to make a difference where it is. Although you know Christ commanded us, "You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here, Judea, a little farther, 
Samaria, where you don't want to go, and to the ends of the earth. So I do believe you, you need to be trying to reach out and serve worldwide. Maybe I represented part of that outreach from the church that I'm serving now. But no, uh, I guess I, I guess I, I, I think I know what you're asking. You know, should churches just be trying to be, you know, how many branches can we open? How far can we reach? Uh, you know, how, how big a presence can we exert? I, I, I am kind of repelled might be too strong a word. I'm really turned off by that stuff. Like really turned off. Well, I know you've. I, I know you had a real commitment to a place. Yeah. I mean, most pastors don't stay in a place that long. No, they don't. That long, but and and you've just been really committed to serve the community that surrounds you. Yeah, yeah. And that comes from somewhere. That value comes from somewhere. Yeah, something I learned partly through FCA, partly through my work. I spent a bunch of time when I first came in the ministry as a youth youth director. I <laughs> worked with you know young people. Partly in my work on campuses, involved in different campus ministries, and and big time in my work as a chaplain in the Navy, I fundamentally believe that ministry happens through relationships. I fundamentally believe that ministry and communication of the gospel and offering somebody an open doorway to life with Christ. I just really don't know how to do that except through relationships. So, yeah, I do believe that longer pastorates, I favor those over I'm here for three years and then I'm gone. Or even I'm here for five years and I'm gone. Yeah. Uh, I was a pastor of the American Church in London, England, for a while. Those people rolled over. We used to print the church directory twice a year. <laughs> Just like in and out. Their companies send them there, and home they go. <laughs> we used to print the directory all the time. Mm-hmm. That was not as satisfying. I, I mean, hey, listen, if you're listening, I loved it there. I had a great time. I love you all. But uh, it was really, I'm thankful. But there's something really profound about building relationships over time. Yeah, people. and to see families. And, and to see families. Generations of families. You know what I've done twice in the last month and a half? Okay, ready? I can do this in a really short sentence. I have. Now, listen, I understand not all branches of the Christian family believe in baptizing babies. If they don't, they probably subscribe to an idea of dedication, something like that, and I'm cool with that, too. In my tradition, we actually call it baptism. But anyway, here's what I've done twice in the last month and a half. I have baptized babies of babies I baptize. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there's significant ministry value in that. As long as, and this is what you have to really be careful about, you're not just camping out. As long as you just haven't, as long as you haven't just become so enmeshed and entrenched that you really can't preach the gospel anymore. That's a danger. There's a danger of too short. There's a danger of too long. I hope I didn't stay too long. Well, I, um, we want to start moving toward um, kind of the end of our time together, but I, 
I do want to point our listeners to a book that you wrote, um, and it is on this theme of the local church and pastoring, and it's a great resource. It's called uh, Help, I'm a Pastor, A Guide to Parish Ministry. You co-wrote this with Richard Stoll Armstrong. He was a professor of ministry at Princeton Seminary. Prominent educator yep. and author and yep. someone I, uh, I imagine was a mentor to, yep, to you. Yep, he was. Yeah. And I think the idea, I think it was his idea. I think the idea at the time was he had been teaching pastoral ministry for about you know 10 or 15 years, but he hadn't done it in 10 or 15 years. Uh, I was doing it. Uh, and I think his, his idea was to put, put it together. So, so there were a few chapters. It's really a, a book that is, it, is really practical. It's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a practice and, primer. And actually, if you, if, if you don't work in, as, a, as a pastor, I think there's still lots of lessons and insight and wisdom to glean from yeah, this. If you're, if you're working with people or working in other um, forms of, of ministry... Um, but let me just, I'm going to ask you for like a 15-second reply to these chapters. Okay, I'll titles. keep them 15 seconds. Yeah, because I want to just hear, because they, they, these were titles that, <clears throat> titles of chapters that I knew were kind of intriguing. They struck me as intriguing or uh, in some cases really problematic. But just give me your 15 seconds of wisdom for each of these chapter titles. You have a chapter called Needing to Stay Fit. What do you mean by that? I think it's hard to take care of other people as a pastor if you are not in some way taking care of yourself. Working with committees. Committees can suck the life <laughs> out of Christ followers. Try to make sure they don't. Good. Welcoming new members. You have a golden opportunity to speak to people at that important transitional step in their faith life. Wrestling with conflict. Conflict can so discourage you that you may actually think about hanging it up. But there are some constructive approaches you can take that can actually be transforming in the life of your church. Good, and that's, I hope that's a good teaser to, to buy the book because there, there's just so much wisdom there. If you were writing the book today, what chapter would you include that you didn't include in the original version of the book? It would be entitled something like Doing Church in the Internet Age. Uh, one question it would have to ask right now is where is Christian worship headed. This is a very significant moment that I don't think Christendom has ever experienced before. Hmm. In 2,000 years of gathered worship, Christ followers worldwide are actually facing the possibility right now of what people are referring to as online worship, virtual worship, which I was talking about a church member recently. I was talking to a member of my congregation recently. And you know what she said? <laughs> she said, I love virtual worship. She said, I love worshiping in my pajamas with a cup of coffee. I love that. Where is this leading? Where will this go? What will happen to Christian worship? And I know a lot of that has been um, amplified during this COVID season because it's forced, you know, 
congregations to it's brought it to the fore to 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 be a part it's on the cutting edge right now yeah you shared something really interesting with me several months back um in just a passing conversation about covid and um conflict do you remember that conversation uh maybe i don't know refresh me (laughs) well you said i probably do the most divisive I was surprised. The most divisive, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, oh, oh, I know what I said. Yeah. 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 What did I say? I've been serving the surf. Uh, yeah. I've been serving the same congregation for, you know, a bunch of decades <laughs> now. Uh, they've been through building programs. You can have big fights there. They've been through, you know, buying land. You can have big fights there. They actually moved from where they'd been for 130 years and left the town and went somewhere else. Well, that could be that could have been Slugfest City, right? That could have been that could have been brutal. Um, they've replaced staff. They've you know they've had financial questions. They've borrowed money, blah 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 blah. They've had tons of opportunity to argue about you name it, right? In my entire time there, I have not seen any issue <laughs> divide them as. significantly as COVID-19. And we'll end on this, um, but what is the lesson? If you, as you look back on all that conflict, all that potential conflict. and the ch- Which didn't happen. I mean, Which didn't happen. We did not. Blood didn't the grace of God, thanks be to God, you, we didn't have fights. You didn't have, it didn't happen. Um, you kind of were able to weather those storms. Yeah. But what is your word of caution or a word of word of encouragement um, or just whatever, whatever the word is. Um, what is it you would say about COVID and that particular situation and what the church needs to be watchful for and about going forward? Or is it just, partic- is it just a, a unique aberration in the life of the church that we may never encounter again quite the same way? Okay. Again, I want to make sure I understand your question. You're saying, what is it about COVID that's been so controversial? Is that what is there saying? any is there any lesson about the uh, about the tension related to culture uh, uh, related to COVID that you would want the church to pay attention to for its health and vibrancy going forward? Okay, yeah, if I can, maybe I can put it in a couple short sentences here. Um, the political polarization of the populace of America is beginning to permeate the church. And COVID is a an acute manifestation, but uh, that situation is not good. <laughs> and, I, and I think that I wasn't probing for that, but I think the, the political, the, the polarization of issues and the way that that was a polarizing issue of all the, I mean, you've been through, all, you've pastored through a lot of um, political highs and lows, and that by far was the one that felt the most politically decisive to you. Yeah, for some reason, this COVID thing, and, you know, the time I've been there, countries made decision to go to war or not. Uh, a couple, a few times, uh, you know, has elected presidents, has had tough campaigns, has had, you know, you weren't here for this, but there's a huge issue in Madison a number of years ago about whether to authorize a gambling casino. and There's been tons of stuff. Yeah. None of that caused the skirmishes in the body that COVID has. What are you hopeful about 
you're going to step away from parish leadership in a few months. What makes you hopeful about the life of the church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <laughs> I didn't make that up. <laughs> that makes me very hopeful. Yeah. That fills me with hope. Uh, I'm also hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful as, and you've read this, uh, increasingly uh, uh, Americans are saying, I don't need church. You know about that in that recent research. Um, I'm hopeful that um, there's a possibility that as the church gets leaner, she may get meaner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as she gets leaner, she may be more muscular. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, your body gets leaner, you can do more stuff mm-hmm. than if you're bloated, correct? Yes. So let's say we're going through a de-bloating of the American church. What if she's getting leaner? She might become more agile. Yeah. Right? I'm hopeful about that. Kirk, what a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So grateful for your ministry and your friendship. Thanks, John. One phrase that stuck out to me from this interview was when Reverend Kirk compared his Navy chaplaincy to campus ministry and used the term institutional ministry to describe both. Institutions are, of course, made up of individuals, but they also have lives of their own and shape the social and cultural and religious fabric of our lives in ways that individuals simply can't. We often talk at Upper House about being a peri-university ministry, seeing the university as an institution that we serve as much as the people that make it up who we also serve. Whether the institution is the church or the military or the university or the business community or the government or many of the other key institutions in our society, understanding them on institutional terms is vital to really understanding our world and to making a difference. I think Reverend Kirk's service to both the church and the Navy in this respect is a testament to the importance of institutional ministries. With that, thanks for listening and go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.